I need some clarity. clarity. Peace, love, and prosperity. Clarity. With the fame, cause popularity. Hello and welcome to the Perpetual Athlete Podcast. My name is Bill. I'm your host. Thank you all for checking in. Episode number 11, Stop Counting Calories. As always, if you like this podcast, and I hope you do, if you're listening, you do like it, rate, share, share with your friends, tell everybody, please, let's get this thing out there. I'm really enjoying making these, and as I've gone on, I think I'm getting better. So the more we share, the more I'll make. So the reason why I call this episode Stop Counting Calories has to do with uh, being on vacation recently. And, and I think I'm going to start just by kind of checking in a little bit. I know I haven't been making as many regular episodes. Uh, I think some busy projects in my life have come to a close in a good manner. And now that will give me the opportunity to make more content. And um, this podcast is a fun one because I didn't go into this podcast thinking I was going to find a really, really good fit or a link, but this ended up working out pretty good. And it really kind of started with a conversation that I was having with my family while I was on vacation. We just got back from California. Um, we were sitting um, in a beautiful mountain town, eating a delicious meal, a little snack before we went into wine country. And you know, we were talking about diet and health and nutrition and all of those different things. Obviously, I do it for a living, so people like to have these conversations when I'm around. And the argument was calorie in versus calorie out. And, you know, he was arguing for it, and I have people that argue for this all the time. And, and I, I want to first state that I don't think this is an impossible practice. It works for some people. What I'm saying, it doesn't work for everybody. And I would say it probably doesn't work for the majority of people for a variety of reasons. Not so much that the math might not always work out the way that it's supposed to, but also because it's a tedious practice. And tedious practices are often the things that get left behind when stress starts to you know, become imposed. And then all of a sudden we break all you know, decorum, we end up in the drive-through eating a fast food burger or whatever your favorite, your favorite shame eating places. You know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, and I kept saying, it's like, you got to understand that the math does not link up. And there's a reason for that. And I'll discuss that in the next segment. And, but the math doesn't add up. And so therefore it's really difficult to look at energy in that way, because you know, the way the chemists do, the way the people that are doing the research, they're looking at as gas exchange. They're looking at as carbon dioxides and oxygens um, and the ratios of these two things. They're not looking at it as calories because that's the way the body works. There's a, a molecule called ATP that's produced from it. When, when we are breaking down a food item, we are getting down to the very chemical bond and in those chemical bonds is energy. We capture it and then we use it to do work. So it's not as easy as, as just looking at heat. And, and, and I'll mention it more later, but calories, just a measure of heat. So that's the thing. It's, I, I just think that people get so bogged down with this idea of matching calories up and they may miss the idea that your basal metabolic rate, which is the predicted amount of calories you should burn if you just you know, don't do anything for an entire 24 hours, which is obviously never happens. And there's variation in those things. I mean, we can measure it, but it's not a predictable value from day to day. And with food, it, it gets even more murky. So I want to kind of hammer that point home with today's 
podcast because this is kind of a fun one. I'm also going to admit I was wrong about something. And I know people like to hear when I do that because I don't always like to do that. So we're calling this Stop Counting Calories. I hope you guys enjoy. I hope everybody's doing well. The uh, 4th of July holiday just passed. Uh, yay, America. I'm, I, I love my country and I love that. It is always seeking to get itself better. And we should always all do that. So I hope you guys enjoy. Stop Counting Calories. I am going to begin this segment by admitting that I am wrong about something, or at the very least that I have been misspeaking on a certain topic of diet. And I have called the diet that I do, the keto diet or a keto approach diet for quite some time now. And I certainly have looked at the data for the keto diet and have found that it, it fits chemically with what I believe the body is, that the body operates better with a higher fat, and a lower carb um, intake. But I have been convinced that calling it a keto diet or actually referring to, you know, this way of eating as ketogenic is wildly inappropriate. So I have been having this ongoing conversation with a functional medicine doc, and I think he's a really bright guy, and I, I enjoy people who think in the same manner that I do, and we've been talking about you know whether keto is good and keto is bad, and I think he's convinced me, and, and, and it's not undoable, but I think he's convinced me that saying keto is probably not the appropriate way to describe the way that I view fitness and nutrition, or particularly nutrition, because we are talking about nutrition only in this guard. So, um, you know, a long time ago, I basically went on a little diet search. I just was trying out some diets. I did a vegetarian diet. I ended up uh, reading some books and found my way into the paleo diet and found instant success with the paleo diet. Um, and one of the things that I had noticed was that I tend to eat more fat and less carbs when I was doing that diet. So naturally I thought, and, and I'd also been going to some conferences and there were some scientists that were talking about the ketogenic diet and some of the results and it was certainly uh, all kind of lined up. But I never thought about it in the sense that, you know, calling it a ketogenic diet or calling the style of diet that I do keto is probably inappropriate because, um, what he has convinced me is that it doesn't matter. You would have to eat piles and piles of fat. And I know this has been said to me many times. You cannot nutritionally cause ketosis. Um, you know, ketoacidosis, the really severe version, usually is in diabetics, but it's not necessarily something that occurs because of eating too much um, or eating too much fat, I guess I should say. So, um, you know, though I am eating a diet, and, and for me, in my mind, I'm just thinking it as a macronutrient balance, not at the actual functioning of the body, which is odd because most of the times that's the way that I approach these things. But, you know, in my mind, I'm just thinking, well, high fat, low carb, we'll call it keto because that um, sort of aligns with the way that is. But I never thought that I could not, you know, when I say that and when I promote that, what happens is, is people end up going to the web and searching it or they hear the buzzword and they don't actually see the way that I'm dieting or the way that I teach nutrition to people. So, um, it, like I said, ongoing conversation, really cool guy. I think I'm, I'm hoping to have him on eventually, but he, he basically laid that down. And, and it makes sense to me, and it makes sense to me. And, and why all of this has kind of come about and why we're talking about 
you know, stop counting calories in uh, this particular episode is because, you know, I was having this conversation with my family about uh, diet and calories in versus calories out. And it reminds me how people misview energy and the body because the calorie is not necessarily a thing. Calorie is a measure of energy a measure of energy released in a chemical reaction. So uh, your body, when it is breaking fuel, when it is turning a carb or a fat, or in some cases a protein into energy, it is releasing heat as a byproduct of the energy that is being created in the body. And actually, it's somewhat of an inefficiency if you're producing too much heat. So it, you know, to say that, oh, calories in versus calories out, it's really difficult to do. Um, originally, I was fed that concept in a documentary uh, called Fed Up. It's a documentary that was done in 2014. It's a really good one. Uh, but there was a particular, it had a cast of a bunch of scientists and individuals. And um, one of the scientists from the University of Cal basically said a calorie is not a calorie. And how he defined it was is that, sure, we can measure calorie output in humans pretty easily. Uh, the best way typically is to do it through gas exchange, and this will make more sense as we go through this point. Um, but anyway, we can do that. So we know how many calories a human is burning when they're doing activity. There's whole fields of research based off of ergonomics. But when it comes to food, we can't. There's no way we can predict how many calories of food is actually going to produce in the human body. And I say that because most of the values that have been established in nutrition, you know, the calorie amount per gram of carbohydrate, protein, all of that, are based off of a chemical procedure called a bomb calorimeter. It's actually a device in a chemistry lab where they combust the food and then they just measure the heat that comes off of it. The only thing is, is that you don't just put food into your body and it combusts and heat comes off of it. There's a lot of steps in between that are chemically guided and chemically regulated. So all of these things are not as cut as dry as you just eat the food and that food will produce X amount of calories. Um, so that makes it very difficult to do the calories in versus calories out. And that's why, again, kind of getting back to my original point of this segment is why I'm wrong about calling a diet ketogenic. Um, but it doesn't mean that there aren't diets that can create a low, moderate level of ketosis that can actually drive change in the body. And that is actually the intermittent fasting protocol. And, and this is the, you know, I've been on board with the idea of intermittent fasting for a minute. Um, I think it's a great concept. Um, I wouldn't say I was fully on board because I, in my mind, I'm still thinking, well, you still have to have a high fat, low carb. So I'm hammering this point of keto. But the point that really sealed the uh, discussion was, remember, when you are fasting, especially if you prolong it for a little bit over, you know, the normal windows, like maybe go at 24 hours every now and then, or maybe instead of that eight hour window, that's typically let's, let's shorten that window to like four and, and, you know, really kind of like throughout the day, stay in the fasted state and then see how your body sort of changes after that point. Uh, because that is a functional ketosis. When you are in a low energy state, the moment you're liver glycogen is depleted, your body is going to start producing ketones. If it's a pathological thing, then yeah, it becomes dangerous, but it doesn't necessarily come, become dangerous in the short term 
of intermittent fasting. All right. Obviously, we, we prolong way beyond certain points. We start to see other manifestations of, of, of starvation. But in the short term, this does all the things that the ketogenic diet essentially reports. It puts you into a mild state of ketosis. It actually clears the liver out of energy because the reality is, is that the reason why people put on weight in response to food, it's not a calorie thing. It's not a heat thing. It's a numbers thing. It's a chemical thing. And if you put too much chemistry through the system and the system can't handle that, that much chemistry. So think of it like a funnel. I'm pouring water into a funnel. Uh, in the big end, it comes out the little end. And obviously, the rate through the smaller end is going to be less than the rate can be into. So you have to measure your rate to make sure you don't overflow. But if you do that, energy is going to spill over the side. And that's more or less what I'm talking about. Or water is going to spill over the side. That's the analogy for energy. Um, it's a thing called metabolic flexibility, and metabolic flexibility is how your body moderates between the fed and fasting state. And what the conversation kind of drawn to, and again, another point he made that really hammered why I've been wrong, is that we spend too much time in the fed state. And that has a lot to do with the idea of eating throughout the day periodically to prime the metabolism, whatever that means. But the reality is, is if you constantly stay in the fed state, all you're doing is making hormones and uh, enzymes that are designed to store energy. So any little energy available is just going to be instantly stored. And conversely, you don't spend enough time in the fasting state. So you end up having these crashes and burns when you do a little bit of fasting. The reality is it doesn't take long to shift this over. It's just a matter of going through the process of allowing the body to somewhat panic and then come back to reality because it has all the tools there. So that's the great energy debate, folks. And remember, stop counting calories. So let me bring you behind the curtain here just so that you get a little look at the operations and how some of these uh, podcasts and segments come about. There's a practice that I used to love to do when I wrote the blog back in the day. And it's something that I really hope that I can rekindle because it's fun. It's just randomly searching headlines of the science magazines, of you know things that are more related to actual research, not any of the popular media stuff, but even sometimes that too, because you can, you can kind of fall down a rabbit hole with health information and kind of get to an answer about something that's really interesting. And that kind of happened to me. And even better, you know, originally I was going to do this episode as another random bag. I had done episode 10 as a random bag of thoughts, I didn't think I was going to have a composed podcast and, and somehow, some way, this actually turns into a composed podcast because of this article that I came about. And it's going to seem somewhat not related to what we were discussing in the last segment, but actually completely related to the idea of metabolic flexibility and genetic variation of that in each person, in each individual, and how you know each person has to kind of find the right balance of input to gain the most appropriate outputs. And, and when you talk about genetics and disease, that's the first thing that you have to really you know, that's the first point you got to hammer home. And, and, and I used to say this in my class all the time. It's just because you are genetically predispositioned to a particular disease, it doesn't necessarily mean that 
that disease is going to become a reality because when things are genetically predisposition, it requires an input from the environment to cause that gene to be expressed. Okay, I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. So the article that I found, it was from a pretty good paper. It's more like a reporting on an article that was done and I did a little bit more searching and I went and looked at uh, some of the things that the original article did, but it was a gene that was found and this is the value of sequencing the human genome. This was a gene that was found that had a variant uh, that if that variant was in place in an individual, they had a very, very high chance of getting type 2 diabetes, specifically type 2 diabetes. And, you know, the uh, gene itself is tied to uh, signaling in the cell for IGF or insulin growth-like factor, which is a really important uh, remodeling, reshaping growth hormone. Um, obviously, in bodybuilding and weightlifting, they talk about IGF all the time. So I found, you know, that interesting because I'm certainly a fan of the idea of us looking deeper and deeper into the epigenetic controls of genes, because that's more or less what this sounds like to me, uh, just in the brief, you know, breezing that I've done. I haven't done a, a ton of research on it yet, but just in the few articles that I looked through just to kind of get to familiarize myself with what I'm looking at, it seems like this is part of the epigenetic process. And the epigenetic process is the way in which genes are controlled without, you know, being actual gene code. It's more something that is in the environment that shapes the packaging in a way that allows a gene to be expressed. So it was kind of cool. And, and I always like to find these things because I do firmly believe that this is the way in which, you know, genetic variations are expressed amongst a variety of people, why we can be so similar, but yet that small little percent difference between one human to the next can lead to somebody who, you know, looks at a donut and gains weight or somebody who can eat as many donuts as they want and they, they don't gain a pound, you know what I'm saying? So uh, this is the kind of things, the kind of information that I think is really useful as we, you know, approach the late, you know, more and more information on health and nutrition and, and, and whatnot. So um, two things struck me about this is that sometimes these articles give you good information. Like I said, it's good to see that the science is advancing, looking at the human genome and finding a way in which the epigenetic controls may uh, cause some of the, the disease types that we see that are more of the chronic nature. But it also really is a bit misleading. So somebody sees this, they freak out, they go buy their 23andMe, and they look to see if they have that variant. And the reality is, is that this variant's found in like 6% of the population, or at least that was what I, I believe I read. It's, it's very rare that this variant is found in people. So it's just one of those things. It's like, cool, it's not a cause for type 2 diabetes. It's just a particular gene set that makes it a little bit more of a higher risk. So that's, you got to think about it in terms of risk of getting, because again, without the environmental, which is over energy into the body, sort of like we were talking about in the last segment, then you start to see that energy circulating. And that's, that's what we're looking at because it's spilling out from the metabolic system back into the blood and then it accumulates in the blood and then the cell becomes numb to it. And then we have type two diabetes. That's not just a function of that one particular gene. It's a function of many genes and a lot of different genes. Um, 
And that is how, and, and it's a function of the energy inputted to the body. So there's, there's two folds. It's that nature versus nurture thing. Is it fully environment? Is fully genetic? I think there's certainly, um, you know, cause to believe that both sides are responsible. You know, if you are more genetically susceptible to chronic diseases, and I think that's ultimately the paradox of chronic disease is, you know, we are susceptible to different um, types of it, whether it be cancer, whether it be heart disease, whether it be diabetes, and any of the other ones that are, you know, uh, available that are, are due to an abundance of energy. Most of the times, these are not diseases that are set in stone just because there's a genetic link for us. It, it is ultimately the genetics uh, coming into contact with the environment. And, and that's the best way to think about your DNA is your DNA is your way of sensing the environment. It tastes the environment, what you're eating, the temperature, the humidity, anything, you know, uh, whatever chemicals are in the air. All of that is there to, you know, prevent a, a short loss of life. And your DNA is part of that and it adapts and changes in response to those things. So um, when you're thinking about chronic disease again and you see things that are, you know, they found this, they found this, you know, they've been looking for the smoking gun for obesity and all of these for years. They haven't found them because they just keep finding more and more links to different pathways and chemical nature of the body that it's somewhat unpredictable unless you really know the full scope of all the ways in which the system can be disrupted. But the easiest way to do it is just, you know, eat better, eat less, eat better food, exercise more. I know it's kind of stupid, but I'm an exercise guy. So I have to do that. We'll come back and tie a bow on this here in just a second. My producer likes me to come and kind of tie things up a little bit. So I know these last segments are going to be a little coachy. I don't want to keep you too long here, but I do want to, you know, finish the conversation about the great energy debate, the chronic disease paradox, and how we should all stop counting calories. So what's the easiest way to get away from the mathematics? Uh, the best way is just to look up a lot of information on intermittent fasting and the different ways in which people intermittent fast. I know sometimes people kind of panic when they don't eat and they start to feel that little bit of anxiousness and crankiness and all of that. You got to get through it. And even if that means locking yourself in a padded room or whatever it is, you got to get through. But I promise you, it, it, it's not like breaking sort of the mental addiction. And I've talked about this in other episodes before. I, probably a topic that we talk about even further is sort of the mental dependency we can have towards food as a comforting item because there's that link between sort of the hedonism and the survivalism. But if you break that link, if you just break that link and you see that you can survive, your, your body does not go into panic modes, your appetite gets controlled, your weight begins to normalize, and surprisingly, you have a ton of energy. You cannot, I cannot stress the importance of driving the body into the fast because the body likes to operate at the red zone. It likes to be right on the verge of energy failing, but the ability to find energy in an appropriate amount manner. Not this massive fed state where you're almost going into a lifelong hibernation and not this you know, overly fasted state, which could obviously lead to complications of withering away. So um, I would certainly think that looking at 
intermittent fasting as an option is probably the first thing. Um, my buddy, the guy who's the uh, doc that I've been having the conversation with, basically, you know, puts it this way. It's just like eat, eats the foods that you like, just limit the amounts of them that you eat. And, and a lot of that is the way that I like to preach. I mean, um, you know, I eat big meals in a day, but I, I eat foods that I like most of the time that are super healthy. And then, you know, if I have to do a 24 hour fast, and that's one of the things that I'm implementing into my own routine is I'm going to have a 24 hour fast. Um, and I'm doing that because, you know, if, if my fiance and I like to go out for dinner and, you know, I want to eat something that's a little off of the diet and particularly things like grain that may not energetically in one meal cause me problems, but typically cause me GI distress and things like that's the other side of the equation. You know, I'd like to be able to have that and be able to get through that without all of the complications that come with me eating a little off of, you know, what, what normally sits very well and gives me, you know, the appropriate amount of energy and feeling well. So that 24 hour fast sort of helps with that. So I think you guys should look at some of these options. And again, I'm always willing to have conversations with individuals who want to hear my thoughts on this. Um, just remember, you know, food is, and, and I, I say this all the time because food is a very important thing to me. Food is vital to the human spirit, not just for human health. It's vital to the human spirit. So make sure you're eating foods that you like. But if you limit them and you use these intermittent fastings, you don't have to sort of separate yourself from certain foods that you like. You can put them in their appropriate place and create a behavior pattern that allows you to enjoy all of it. Your cake and your eat it too. That's kind of the attitude I have towards. All right, guys, go live an Epicurean life. Until the next time, Bill Fredericks, the Perpetual Athlete Podcast. Tarif knockout, knockout, knockout. Local rapper part one, part one. Part one.